All right, church. Ooh, how about that? <laughs> if you could find your seats, we're going to dive into God's Word. Um, you can be turning to 1 Peter chapter 2. I don't know if it's echoing out there. It sounds a little weird up here. <laughs> you guys will get it. I'll just keep talking. They'll get it taken care of. Um, we start our new series this morning, um, and so let's, let's dive in. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Trinity Community Church. Well, by the way, let me just say, sorry for this annoying, distracting. I forgot my iPad <laughs> back there in Brandon. <laughs> um, and so it's in the mail. I'll get it tomorrow. But um, I'm, stuck, I'm stuck with my computer today, which I don't like. But uh, that's all right. That's all right. Trinity Community Church is a God-centered church where the Word of God is proclaimed and received as our authority, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope for salvation. We believe in the ongoing work of the Spirit and grace that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit provides that drives us to serving, stewardship, worship, mission, etc., etc. Is anybody in the room here this morning where you would say, I have in the past been hurt by the church? Can you just go ahead and raise your hand? Yeah, it's okay. My hand is up, by the way, right? Okay, so I'm among, among those um, you know, where, where you, you've been hurt by the church and maybe at some point you thought, you know what, I just think it would be easier to do church from a live stream. It would just be easier to do church from home. It'd be easier to do church, frankly, in my pajamas with my cornflakes, right? Like that would just be such an easy way to do church. And yet, you're here. Thank you for being here. Thank you. The church, church life, can be quite a mess, but she is the bride of Christ. She's the bride of Christ, and I am still a fan of her. Over these next 13 weeks, we're going to say some things about the church, specifically about, the, ooh, that's different, this church, all right? So, um... We're going to speak uh, about the church, but we're going to speak about this church. And as you know, this launches our new series called Trinity Community Church, Doctrine, Distinctives, and Direction. All right? And that will take us, if you can believe it, in 13 weeks, it will be Advent. Okay? So our series will take us right to Advent, and that's crazy to me. All right. Much confusion remains still today, about the church. And COVID didn't help anything, all right? If anything, it just increased the confusion as it relates to the church. Um, is it a building? No, it's, it's not a building. Is it, is it in a place of entertainment that sprinkles on a little bit of spirituality? No, it's not a place of entertainment. Uh, is it a museum? Because if you travel through Europe, you get to tour amazing, incredibly architectural church buildings 
The thing is, is you tour them. They're empty. They're places that you go through and you go, wow, this is incredible. And my mind starts to think, I, I wish I could pastor here. I want to pastor in that kind of architecture, right? In the middle of a, of a, of a European village, right? And everybody walks into the church. Well, they're empty. You pay to tour them. Um, once a place of a house of worship, now a place, uh, pay 15 bucks to tour the museum. What is a church? Answer that question wrong, um, we do much harm and damage. At Trinity, we believe in the local church. Uh, we believe that God ordained the church and has made her his bride. We believe that church is not some sideshow of entertainment. It's not a museum to tour. We believe it is the body, the bride, the flock of God, according to scripture. We believe that she exists for the renown of his name. We believe that we're a part of it by grace. And as a part of it, we have a mission to pursue and live. And it's for that reason we desire to build a community of believers here at Trinity who are God-loving, theologically informed, heart-inflamed, mission-engaged worshipers of our Lord and Savior. So today we're going to focus on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. And what it'll do, that's kind of like the, um, the tight orbit that we're going to be in, but it's going to push us out to wider themes found in 1 Peter. Um, let's pause. Let's pray. God, we just pray uh, not only this morning, but over this next 13 weeks, this series that we're in, Lord, pray that you would help us, help us um, as a people, Lord, help, help us to love our church, your bride. <laughs> oh God, that you gave your life for Lord, um, I pray that you would help me in the preaching of your word this morning here found in, in 1 Peter. Lord, use our time together. Whether we're in the room or watching from a live stream, I pray that you would stir our hearts to have a conviction about the local church. Lord, thank you that we can be in the room this morning. Thank you that this is not a museum tour today. It is worship of you, our holy God, for which... Well, I hope by the end of this morning, we're pretty surprised at that we're here in the room. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one, it's the surprising people. Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman write in their book, Rediscover Church. They say this, God does not invite us to church because it's a comfortable place to find a bit of spiritual encouragement. No, he invites us into a special family of misfits and outcasts. He welcomes us into a home that's rarely what we want, yet just what we need. My desire this morning is to help us to see the surprise that is church. Actually, the shock that is church. We don't think of it like that. I don't know that anybody walked in the room this morning and go, wow, surprise, I can't believe I'm here. Nobody's shocked this morning to be here, but I hope by the end of this morning, perhaps we'd be walking out thinking, wow, I'm shocked to be here. 
I'm stunned to be here. No, we tend to think of church more as a take it or leave it equation. Come and go, perhaps as we please. Consider the shock this morning that you're in the room with fellow sinners saved by grace, worshiping the Lord. The surprise really begins, before we even read our text this morning, it really begins a page to your left, chapter 1, verse 1. This is a surprise that Peter starts his letter off like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Did you, did you hear the words elect? It, 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 it's, it's this, the Lord has chosen this people. It, it, it can be defined. It, it, is, it is the favored ones of God. Hear the contrast there? Like there should be an immediate shock there to the favored ones of God, we could say, elect exiles. What a contrast. We would tend to think in our American ears, we would tend to think, okay, favored ones would mean, well, favor. (laughs) Favor in life, maybe an ease of life, maybe a comfortable life. No, that's not the calling of the Christian. It's the elect exiles. It's the elect exiles who are in the dispersion, meaning they've been just dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. He says in verse 6, carrying on that theme, in this you rejoice. Hear the, hear the con- wait, what? We're going to rejoice. Rejoice about what? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. The New Testament believer was a stranger in a strange land. He's a dispersed, she's a dispersed follower of Christ, a nomad of people, if you will. It calls into our remembrance of a nomad. His name was Abraham and the Israelites that followed later after him. This is not America what Peter's writing to. He's not, he's not writing to an America who once had a, a, a grip on Christian morality and is losing that grip. That's not the context here. There's no grip on moral Christianity when Peter writes his letter. Um, there's, there's either indifference and there's a whole lot of hatred towards the elect exile in the dispersion. Their existence was severe persecution. And what will God say to them through Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit? It's in that context that he brings us four metaphors, four surprises, if you will, about the church. All right, so now we get to our text, 1 Peter 2, verse number 9. Hear the surprise. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, before we look at those four metaphors that he writes of there, notice how Peter starts that out. He says, but you are, but you are. It's a very emphatic, it, it, it literally carries forward from that letter, from the, those original hearers of the letter, they are, you are, to this room this morning, but you are. 
And it's a pretty stark contrast to the verses before it. Look in your Bibles. Look right before it. What is he? What is what is the but you are? Let's read verse seven. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are. Oh, that's you, church. And what I'm saying to us this morning throughout this entire sermon is we should be surprised by this, but you are. The cornerstone was that stone that the entire building aligned itself with. And Peter is speaking of the surrounding world around these believers, these elect exile dispersed believers. And he's saying they rejected the cornerstone. They rejected Jesus Christ is what he's saying. And he then emphatically says, but you, personal you, they are this, but you are, and then the four metaphors, chosen race. You're a chosen race. And what Peter is doing here and will continue to do is he's taking them back to their Old Testament, back to their Old Testament, back to their Old Testament. And so he's using Old Testament language. This is God's electing purposes found all the way back. We've preached it before. We preached it this year, Genesis 12, when Abram was called out by God. Not because Abram was great, not because he was godly, but because God is great, because God is going to have a people. It's what he covenants there. And this, this choosing of a man at this point, and what will later be this choosing of a nation, don't hear nation like we think of nations. We think of India, we think of Colombia, we think of you know, France and Egypt and all these different, no, this is peoples. You're being called out, Old Testament, among peoples. God is going to call out a people to have a people for him, for his possession, for for the worship of him. And so God called them out, set them apart from the peoples, and made them his own. And in that, Abraham, Isaac, right? Moses is raised up. You've got Esther, you've got Ruth, you've got a long list of Old Testament saints who what? They were called out by God to lead God's people. You move into the New Testament, you've got Peter, you've got Mark, you've got Matthew, you've got Paul, and the list continues on. Elect, chosen people of God um, in the midst of another people, cornerstone rejectors right? And I'm saying to us this morning, those of you who are servants of the living God, you've repented of your sins, you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but you are a chosen race. And it should shock us to be in the room. You, well, let's name some names. Ivan, Rebecca, Kaylee, 
Richard, Karen, move to this side of the room. Bobby, right? You are a chosen race. Not because you're so grand, not because you're so wonderful, not because you're so smart, not because you figured things out, not because you're godly, but by the mercy of the living God. He said, you're mine. Stunned to be in the room. You're a chosen people. That's not a stray verse. It's not like I've got to go digging and searching. Where do I find it? We could go to so many places. In every book of this one book, 66 times we could find and follow this theme. Here's just a couple. Maybe you want to hear from Jesus himself. He's teaching his disciples, and he's talking about abiding in the vine. It's John 15. I would encourage you to read it in its full later. He comes to verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Or we could go to Ephesians It's a favorite. You hear it often. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What do you do with these texts? What do you do with these texts? We go to 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, but God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what is the surprise this morning? That is the church. The surprise is that you and I are in it. That's the surprise. Because it's by the extreme mercy of God that we find ourselves in the room this morning worshiping God, lifting our voices, raising our hands, saying, hallelujah, what a savior. That is all a work of God. And we should be shocked to be here. It's not because you're good or smart or gifted or any way deserving. It's not because God looked at you as the cute puppy in the window and just irresistibly has to pick you. It's in your sin. It's when you are an object, Ephesians says, when you are an object of his wrath, you're mine. I don't want to kick the church to the curb, quite the opposite. The mess and all, that is the church. I want to say, wow. I'm shocked to be here. I'm stunned to be here. I'm surprised that I get to be a part of the people of God and that I find myself in the room this morning. He says, secondly, he says, you're a royal priesthood. Well, that ought to surprise us a little bit. (laughs) You're a royal priesthood. He's pulling Old Testament language again. Genuine followers of Christ are a part of the royal priesthood. 
Does that shock you this morning? You're a priest. Probably didn't wake up this morning thinking that. And it sounds weird to our ears, but he's recalling the Old Testament priest. And because Christ, the great high priest, has come, right? That Old Testament priest is no longer needed. Now, the priesthood of God is all the saints of God, all the called out people, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. What did the priest do? What does that mean about us? Well, the priest had access, that's key word, he had access to God. He went to God on behalf of the people. He was a mediator. He spoke to the Lord on behalf of God's chosen people. What a privilege it is that when you, you know what, when you, when you ladies, you have a friend, you have someone in your community group who's not well, and you begin to pray for that friend, and then you start to prepare a meal for that friend and her family or whatever her situation might be, and you're praying as you're making that meal, and you pray for her as you deliver that meal, and, and you as a family have a moment where you come together and you pray for them as a family. That's the royal priesthood that you are. Like, I don't even know if we realize how regularly, I tried to put that in a very common sense of terms, how regularly we perform the priesthood. Um, and we don't think of it in terms like that. When you're, when you're at home and you're working on the children's lesson for the coming Sunday, and then you come and you teach the children that lesson, you're the royal priesthood. He says in chapter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. These are not just token things that we do is what I'm trying to say. I'm even trying to, to, to say to us, be shocked when you make that meal. Be shocked when you stand in front of those children. Be shocked when, when you have that, the, that time in the morning and you're going through the prayer list that gets emailed out to us. Ah, oh, we're taking our brothers and our sisters to the Lord in prayer. Surprised to be called out by God? Surprised to be among the royal priesthood of God? How about this one? You're a holy nation. You're a holy nation, meaning you're a holy people. Holy meaning that you've been set apart by God from the rest of the people. Now, here's a pastoral concern that I have us for, for us this morning. It's become popular, more and more increasingly popular for Christians, at least in our country, I can speak to, to ignore this holy calling, this holy aspect, to, to think little of it, to not be surprised that we're a part of this holy people, to think, you know, I'm just going to live like the world. I'm going to act like the world. I'm going to talk like the world. I'm going to view what the world views. I'm going to do what the world does. And I'm just going to have a little bit of Jesus in my pocket. And if things really get tough and difficult, 
you know, I can always pull out some Jesus. When needed, let me just, let me just grab for some Jesus. All the while, little difference between Christian world. This has reared its ugly head in the realm of politics in our day. And I think it's a response from the Christian circle, which we keep being told, the evangelical voter. Can't stand that phrase, by the way. They've ripped the meaning of the word. But rooted out of fear, Christian, we're losing, we're losing our grip, we're losing our grip. What do you do when you lose control of things? What's the response? Right? There's a reason why we talk about backseat back drivers, right? A backseat driver is a person who doesn't have the wheel and is responding because of a lack of control. Stop elbowing each other right now, okay? Stop doing that, right? But there's that response, and the response is one of, you know what? You wouldn't have that response if you were in control, right? But because there's, a, there's this moment of lack of control, and there's, uh, there's, it's a fearful moment. Don't trust your husband. Maybe you don't trust your wife. And now there's that, and we all who are married know exactly what that looks like. Well, there's a moment for the American church, the believer, to not respond as we continue to lose control of things in our country, morally speaking, not to respond out of fear because, ah, I'm afraid, but to respond in faith and trust in God. So that our response, if I could take us to social media, doesn't look like the world. It looks like the believer in Christ who has faith in God, that he's more than able. And so our conduct can look less and less like holy people and look more and more like the world. More inclined, if I could say, I hope I don't offend, but to shout or to laugh at, let's go Brandon, to joke about it, than to engage with Scripture that calls us to pray for those who are in governing authority over us. You're a holy nation. Renounce not only the things of this world, but the thinking, the thinking ways of this world. You're a holy people. You are not of this world. We live in this world, but we're not of it, John 17. This too is quite the surprise to our senses. Who am I that I would be called holy anything? Peter has much to say about that theme. Chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
Chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. To the tech team, I'm going to skip the next text for sake of time. We'll go to 1 Peter 4. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. As his holy people, we are not of this world. We think, we act, we live differently. And this holiness is pervasive in all areas of our lives. He goes on from there, the fourth metaphor, a people for God's own possession. Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter four. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people, what? Of his own inheritance, as you are this day. If you're truly a Christian this morning, you belong to God. You're his. You are his very possession. Now, lest any unbelievers in the room think, well, I don't want to belong to anybody. You belong as well, but not to the Lord. You belong to, to your own lustful passions, whatever they might be. You literally were bought, you were purchased um, to be his possession. What did he use as payment? Well, Peter speaks to that. Knowing that you were ransomed, purchased, bought out of slavery is that word, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. He didn't buy you with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It's what we celebrated this morning in communion, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, recalling Old Testament, Exodus, get the lamb without spot and blemish, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What a shocking verse. At Trinity, we don't want to be so familiar with these truths without reminding ourselves how shocking this news is, this gospel that we celebrate and sing about and preach and teach to the children. What the Bible is saying here is that your payment, the, the, the payment for, to, to belong to God, well, he paid the payment and it was his very blood. It was the blood of the Son of God. God has chosen you. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You belong to him, his possession. And none of that, I keep repeating, none of that is based on something that's in you. 
It's entirely based on the sovereign mercy will of God. He didn't choose you because of your efforts. He didn't choose you because of your work or your performance or your morality. And that's so foreign to our ears. We do everything in our culture based on performance. We earn our wages. We look for promotions and raises based on what? Your effort. We get offended when putting forth the effort and it's not reciprocated. Someone cooks you a meal. You feel obligated to them. We have a phrase, right? Even in our culture, pay it forward. What is that? (laughs) What is that? Someone picks up the check at lunch. I owe you. And all that's well and good until it comes to the gospel where he pays it all. We sung it this morning, full atonement. Can it be? Can that full atonement? But when we come to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he paid a debt you could not pay. Your account, it's empty. You've got nothing to offer except your sin. And he called you out in that state. And you now belong to him. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. And all of this is a shock. And I'm asking us to be freshly humbled and freshly amazed that you and I are not among those who in the previous verses rejected the cornerstone. Welcome to the church. A gathering of believers. Unbelievers are more than welcome. But what you have here this morning, largely speaking, is those who've been called out by God and are not rejecting that cornerstone, but instead are worshiping him and saying, wow, how did I get here? Remind me, how did I get here? Let's not be ignorant of how we got here and what was provided to bring us here. The next points will be a lot briefer. Number two is it's a surprising history that we see here. Trinity is now 27 years old, and that's exciting for us, and we've talked about that, and we're grateful for our brief history, but hear me, that's a brief history. We think, wow, 27 years, that's pretty crazy. And I feel the crazies. I feel it in my back. Um, But what's more exciting than that is we're connected to a far deeper, longer history. Your history is actually, we can take our history back to Genesis 3, where where the gospel is first proclaimed, 315. Peter wrote his letter in early 60s AD, and he's encouraging those elect exiles, dispersed people of God in Christ by pointing those people, the elect exiles of that day, what does he do? He's he's pointing them to a previous elect exile dispersed people, the Old Testament. 
And in this, he shows them that they're connected to a previous chosen people of God. A a, a previous people who had received the faithfulness of God, the mercy of God poured out onto them. There was nothing special about them amongst the other peoples. And as Christ followers today, we too are connected to that rich salvation history. You can even make comparisons. First Peter chapter 2, we've already read it, so let's just go ahead and jump to Exodus 19. Look at the comparison. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus, as many of you know, is about God's salvation of his chosen people out of that slavery there in Egypt. 400 years of slavery. And is here in the midst of that slavery, God raises up what? A deliverer, Moses. But this great deliverer that they're so grateful for on Monday and so hateful towards on Tuesday, right, is an imperfect deliverer. Well, your story, Peter is telling the people of his day, your history is rooted in that history. And what I'm saying to us today, so is yours. Your history is rooted in Peter's letter and that history of those believers of his day and is rooted in Abraham, the Exodus. Our story, as I said, actually begins back in Genesis 3. In the plan of God, he's going to deal with the sin of Adam through another deliverer, he's saying in chapter 3, who will rescue his people once again from their slavery. He said, I've never been a slave. Yes, you have. You are slave to your sin. You are slave to the passions of your flesh. Christ came and purchased your redemption out of that slavery, you now belong to him. You are his. Be shocked. The taskmaster in our lives was far worse than the Egyptian. Christ came, delivered us from the slavery of sin and eternal death. Be shocked by your history. This history of salvation continues to get unpacked throughout the pages of Scripture. You can close the book and we can enter into further history. And your history is a part of that history. It marches on through the first church there in Acts and the gospel advances. And you're here today because the gospel advanced in the first century A.D. Beyond those pages of Scripture... Some we know by name. We think of or we talk about Wycliffe or the Tyndale. Many of whom we don't even know them by name. Who went to the stake to be burned. That you and I today would have this in our laps. That's your history. That's your ancestry. 
And I'm saying to us this morning, it's a surprising history. It's a shocking history. We examine this surprising history not to make much of us, rather that we might behold the eternal saving glory of our God, the purposes of our God, which will not be thwarted. As much as they try in the book of Acts, we're going to shut it down. The gospel advances in that persecution. And what I'm saying to you this morning is you're here and you're in the room because of that history. Certainly not to make much of us, but to make much of his faithfulness and greatness. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Three, a surprising, marvelous light. Don't become so familiar with your salvation that you forget it's a marvelous light. When the Lord turned the lights on in your heart, even people like myself who would say, I grew up in the church. I don't know what date I got saved. And sometimes people who grew up in the church, they think, well, I don't really have much of a testimony. Wrong, wrong. You, just as much as the strung out druggie who came to saving faith in Christ, your slavery was no less when God called you out, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Oh, there is no such thing as a boring testimony. When you talk about going from death to life, We're not talking anything boring. We're only talking about faithfulness, the mercy of God poured out into our lives. Had he not rescued me, I would be among those who are just driving by another, you know, whatever. Whatever's going on in there, don't care. Don't even care. There's no such thing as an unspectacular testimony. Every testimony Whatever yours is, is glorious. God took what was dead and brought it to life. Praise him. Praise him. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once, once you were this, now you're this. Once you were in darkness without Christ, and in this darkness you had no hope within yourself. But God in his mercy brought you out of that darkness into his marvelous light. And I'm saying to us this morning, let us be freshly shocked by the news. Here Peter is stating the contrast that the believer experiences. And he, what greater contrast can he bring? Dark day. Darkness, light. You were that, now you're this. And that phrase that once you were not a people, literally, it means you were a no people. It means you were a nobody. You were a nothing. You were a no people. But now you are the people of God. The surprising, marvelous light is wrapped in his surprising sovereignty. He called you out. 
in, out of his darkness into his marvelous light. Literally, he called you out. It means he summoned you. He summoned you, follower of Christ. He summoned you. No different than when he called out another dead man, Lazarus. John 11 records Jesus saying with a loud voice as he calls into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. <laughs> he summoned him. Dead bodies respond when he summons. And dead Lazarus obeyed the summons. And when he called you, Ephesians says, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he summoned you. Come out. It's called un unconditional election. Not because you cleaned yourself up. Not because you made yourself presentable. No, but in your sin, in the darkness, in the muck of your sin, he summoned you and you had to respond. Again, this theme runs throughout the Bible, but we'll limit it just to Peter. 1-1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. 1-15, but you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 2-21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 3.9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for, those, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The Lord has called you. He has chosen you. He has elected you, called you out of that darkness into his marvelous light. What a surprising news this sovereignty of God has found in that marvelous light. Amen. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The worship team, if you could join me. Number four, it's a surprising mission. It's a surprising mission. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. The word that shows purpose. It's a purpose statement. He called you that you might proclaim him. What's the purpose of the sovereign electing purposes of God? It's that you might proclaim his excellencies. There are those who say Reformed theology dulls evangelism's blade. Quite the opposite. Rightly understood. Reformed theology actually sharpens the blade. It emboldens the believer. It gives faith for the, the, the moment of evangelism. Because we can evangelize without pride. If there be success, it's not about us. We can evangelize without guilt. If there be failure, God is sovereign. It's not that we have our arguments all perfectly polished and all lined up and all in order. Praise be to God. We've quoted it before, but Charles Spurgeon talks about his salvation. He went to hear, um, went to go to his church and a snowstorm couldn't get there. Ends up at another church, found out that that small church, their lead pastor was not there that day. And the guy who preached did a terrible job and he got saved that day. And all praise belongs to the Lord. And probably to some degree, that's your testimony as well. It's not the great presentation. It's the great spirit of God at work in the believer. 
what do we proclaim? We proclaim his excellencies. Evangelism is not about you. Evangelism is not about your story. Evangelism is about the story of God. It's about him. It's about him. He is the one that we proclaim. We don't proclaim our morality. We don't proclaim our preferences. We don't proclaim our self-righteousness. We proclaim the person of Jesus Christ and all of his excellencies. What a surprise that you and I are called to proclaim anything about him. What a shock. Why me? Why you? Well, you and I are the surprise. That is the church. Let's stand together. Would you read it? It'll be on the screen behind me. But let's read it together and then let's go to sing. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To the praise be our God. Let's sing to him. Amen.